Hey guys, welcome to Community Christian Church. My name's Jason. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and to all of you joining us, whether you're joining us online or at our Ashley Park campus, we're honored and glad that you came to be a part of today's service. And uh, as you've already heard in the service, we are four weeks away from Easter Sunday, and that's the day when Christians all over the world come together, and we celebrate the event in history that launched the Christian faith, and that is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so we, as a church, decided in leading up to, those, uh, to that day, we're going to take a look at some of the key moments in the life of Jesus that led up to that moment in history. And here's what we have discovered about Jesus so far. We've been learning that when what Jesus came to teach us, and more importantly, what he came to show us by what he did, was something that was brand new to the world. It was not expected. It was nothing that the world had ever seen before. And even better than that, it was greater than anything the world had seen before. Through what Jesus taught and what he did in his life, he was introducing a better way to live, a, a greater way to uh, relate to God, a, a greater way to treat and relate to the people that we find ourselves around everywhere that we go. And as we're going to see in the next few weeks, Jesus introduced to us an even greater way to die. But today, what we're going to see is that Jesus also introduced us to a greater way to lead or a greater way to have authority uh, in, in our world with the people around us. And when, I, when we see this concept that Jesus is going to introduce to us today, I just go ahead and tell you, it, to be honest, you're not going to be surprised by it. It's not going to be something that you don't know already or, or something that you're just going to be impressed by. And, and the reason is simple. It's because this concept is just so, sort of normal in our world. It's become so ingrained in the way that you expect people to live and the way you expect the world to work that you sort of take it for granted, and so do I. It's just something that in our, in our day and time, it's just become sort of normal. But I'm telling you, in the first century, when Jesus introduced this to his followers, it was far from normal. In fact, I, I wish that I could just sort of wipe away all your assumptions and all your preconceived ideas and experiences, and you could just see this for what it was in the first century. And, and I'll try to do my best. But regardless, this example that Jesus left us has shaped everything that came after it. It has shaped everything that you've come to expect and everything that you admire about the people who are in authority over you. See, this is how you and I judge whether or not we consider people to be worth following or not. This is what you use to judge whether somebody is worth working for or not or whether they deserve your respect or not. It's the quality that you want everybody in your life to possess. You want everybody to live by this idea or this rule. Now, what is this idea? Well, we'll get to that in just a second. But before we do, I need to set it up with some context so that you can see sort of how this came about in the life of Jesus. And so uh, John, the Apostle John, who was one of the eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus, he's the one who recorded what he saw. John was there. He, he was an eyewitness to these events. And he tells us in his account of the life of Jesus one of the most defining miracles that Jesus ever uh, performed. And even if you didn't grow up in church, whether you did or not, you probably are familiar with this story. It's the story of when Jesus raised one of his best friends back from the dead. The man's name was Lazarus. Now, when I say Lazarus was raised from the dead, uh, he was dead dead. I mean, it, it was no question whether he was dead or not. It wasn't one of those situations where he maybe was unconscious, he sort of fell asleep, and all of a sudden Jesus woke him up. No, Lazarus had been dead for four days. He was embalmed dead, already had the funeral dead, 
family's gone home, flowers are wilting, buried in a tomb, he was dead. So as you can imagine, when this happened, it was big news in that region where Jesus was at at the time. Jesus starts to gain this kind of rock star status among people of that day in that area. And as we've been seeing in this series, it's a problem for the religious establishment. In fact, John, who was there, tells us what happened after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He says, when all the people heard of Jesus' arrival into this particular region, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus raised from the dead. And you can imagine, he's kind of an attraction now. You know, Here's a guy who Jesus raised from the dead. People wanted to see him. The leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too, in addition to Jesus, for it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and began to believe in Jesus. And I know what you might be thinking. You may be thinking, well, why don't they believe in Jesus? I mean, if this happened and Jesus is able to do this amazing thing, why don't these religious leaders get on board with Jesus and, and believe in him? Or at the very least, maybe just be good to him and nice to him and get him on their team because you'd think they'd want a guy like that on their team. And that's what we would think. But John tells us exactly why that's not ever going to happen. He writes this. He says, the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together, and they said, what are we going to do? This man performs many miraculous signs, and if we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone's going to believe in him. And then, they said, the Roman army's going to come. They're going to destroy our temple and our nation. See, even these religious leaders were smart enough to know that Jesus wasn't coming to just tack on something really nice to their already established religion. Jesus had come to bring something radically new, something brand new. It was to replace everything that had come before, and it was a threat to them. See, they knew from what Jesus had said and what he had done, he wasn't coming in there to join in with them. He was coming to take over. So, John writes, from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. As a result, Jesus stopped his public ministry among the people and he left Jerusalem. So things are getting tense. The establishment is starting to get nervous. More and more people are following Jesus. They're coming over to Jesus' side. They're leaving away the, leaving the religious establishment. And these religious leaders, they can see it. They feel it. They can sense the ground shifting underneath them. And these religious leaders, they are not happy at all. But there was another group that could see it. There was another group that could feel what was happening. They could feel the wind sort of shifting, and it was Jesus' disciples, those 12 followers that he had gathered around them. But their reaction, they weren't nervous. They were excited. They, they, were, they were sensing something that happening that they had been waiting for, for for years, for generations. See, they'd been praying and hoping for a leader to come along for, for years, someone with enough power, someone with enough authority and influence to stand up to that religious establishment because in their mind, these religious leaders had just given in to the Roman government. They just sort of laid down and bowed down to them, and they were, they were looking for somebody who could finally lead the nation of Israel out from under the Roman rule. So when they heard the word Messiah, for them, that word meant a national leader, a king, of course a religious leader, but even more than that. And they saw Jesus as someone who had enough power and finally enough authority, and it was growing to finally get that job done. He was the leader that they had been waiting for. So you can imagine, these 12 chosen guys, these disciples, they're sensing that something big is coming. It's about to happen. And they're, they're there for the front row for it. They're seeing it. They're seeing history made in front of their eyes. 
They're so close to this chosen one who's going to lead them. And yeah, they might be hiding now. They might be running from the authorities right now. But soon that was going to change. Jesus was going to get enough power and enough authority to finally lead them and all the people. And things were going to get really good for them. So with all of that as a background, now we come to the moment that we're going to look at today. Jesus and his 12 disciples are sitting around a table and they're having a meal together. And this meal is really significant to their heritage. And we don't have time to get into it today, but we are actually going to talk about it next week. So make sure you're here for that. We're going to talk about this meal they're having together. But as they're sitting around this table, it's their last meal with Jesus. They don't know that, but it will be before Jesus is crucified. And right in the middle of this meal, an argument breaks out. Now, John, whose account we've been reading so far of these events, he doesn't include this argument in his account. And you may be wondering, well, why doesn't he include it in his, in his story? Well, because most likely John was in on the argument. And it's not very flattering to him. In fact, it's kind of embarrassing. But there's another historian who tells us about this, and it's, his name is Luke. And in his account, he writes about this moment. And he says, Then they began, the disciples, began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Now, to be clear, they're not arguing about whether Jesus is the greatest. I mean, that was sort of a settled deal. They, they had all come to believe that Jesus was going to be the king and in this new world, this new kingdom that he was going to set up, that Jesus was the top guy. But they also were smart enough to know that there had to be some sort of organizational chart underneath Jesus. There had to be some other positions that got filled when he began to rule. And so they started arguing about, well, Who's going to be at the top of that organizational chart? Who's going to be right up underneath Jesus? And they all, of course, were arguing for their own, their own position. They wanted to be the person who was going to be greatest in this kingdom. So they're fighting over who's going to be on top. So right in the middle of this argument, Jesus speaks to them. And again, it, it probably wasn't what they were expecting to hear. It probably wasn't what they wanted to hear. But it's just another indicator of what Jesus was about to introduce into the world and that it was new. It was something that they were not expecting. Here's what Jesus said. He said, guys, in this world, in this world that we live in right here, right now, kings and great men lord it over their people. And, and that wasn't surprising to them. Everybody knew that. That was just the way the world worked. And in their, their way, of their system, their way of living, everybody who had power used their power for themselves, for their own advancement. In fact, it was the only way to get ahead in that culture, in that world. So every king did it. Every leader lived that way. And they believed that since Jesus was about to become the king and the leader of this new nation, well, the disciples just assumed, well, that's how Jesus is going to do it too. He's going to operate the same way until Jesus said this. He says, but among you, and when he says you, he means us. Among all of us, it's going to be different. And see, just like he did with everything else he touched, Jesus is about to take leadership and power structures, and he's going to turn them upside down. Jesus said, those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank. The leader should be like a servant. Who's more important, the person who sits at a table or the one who serves them? And, of course, that answer is obvious. Of course, the one who sits at the table but not here, not with us, guys, because I'm among you as one who serves. <clears throat> and what happened next would leave them speechless. They would 
hardly have words to describe what they were about to experience, just like Jesus always did. He doesn't just teach them the truth. He doesn't just tell them what's right. He lives it out right in front of their eyes. And John, he records what they all saw and experienced that night. So Jesus got up from the table. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. Now, when we read this, most of us, this, the gravity of what's happening is just lost on us. Because you don't know anybody in, in this culture that does this. We don't wash each other's feet. It was, it's just not something that we know much about. So if I can, I want us to back up for a second and see if I can't help all of us feel the weight and the gravity of what Jesus is doing in this moment. Now, most of you have probably seen the picture written by Da Vinci, the painting of the Last Supper. You know, and there's Jesus and all the disciples, and they're sitting at this really fine table, and they got these big high back chairs, and they're all, you know, they're all just sitting in these really nice places, this really ornate, beautiful room. Forget all that. I mean, that's why I didn't even put it on the screen because it's not even close to what was going on that night. This is way less dignified than that. So that picture, just wipe it out of your brain. A table in their culture was very low to the ground. Um, they would have been sitting not on these decorative armchairs. They would have been almost sitting on the ground, maybe a cushion uh, underneath them, and they would be leaning over on one arm as they would uh, recline at this table. In fact, if you've ever read the Bible or maybe something from the first century that talks about people reclining at a table, that was the way they did it in their culture. They were literally reclining on the floor at the, this low table. And at a time when everybody walked around in sandals, if you even had sandals, just imagine you walked everywhere you went down roads that were used by everybody, animals and people. They were dirt roads, and they would collect everything that came with all of that. So when it rained or when the animals did their business, everything was right there in the road. And so these were the kind of tra trails and roads that people walked down. So you can imagine at the end of a day what someone's feet would look like and maybe even what their feet would smell like. Now imagine you get down on the floor and you're leaning right next to a person whose feet are just a few inches away from where you're eating. So that's why it became a custom in their day whenever you had a formal meal or whenever you invited guests over to the house to have a meal, you had a servant there and you provided a servant who would wash the people's feet, the guests, as they walked through the door. But on this night, at this meal, either they forgot or just nobody wanted to. They didn't, they didn't designate anybody to be a servant. They didn't go out and hire one either. So picture this scene. <coughs> the first disciple, whoever he was, walks into the room. And right next to the door is a basin of water and a towel hanging there because that was what was supposed to be used to wash your feet before the meal. He looks and sees it there and he realizes there's nobody there to do it. And he thinks to himself, well, I'm not going to be the one to do it. So he just walks right on past, and he goes and takes his seat at the table. And one by one, all the rest of the guys, the 11 guys, walk into that room. They do the exact same thing. They walk past the water. They just go, and they take their seat. So there they all are, sitting on the floor around the table with these crusty, smelly feet. 
and they start arguing about who's going to be top dog when Jesus ushers in his kingdom and takes over the world. So right in the middle of this argument, Jesus speaks up, and then he stands up from the table, gets up off the floor, and John says the first thing Jesus did was he took off his robe. Now, you and I hear robe, and we think, well, that's just like a coat. It's an outer garment. No, it's actually what Jesus was wearing. When Jesus takes off his robe, the only thing he has left is an undergarment. He takes a towel, and he wraps the towel around his waist, a towel that's about to be covered in dirty foot water. Think about a towel that you would put around you as you get out of the shower. Jesus wears this towel. He takes the water next to the door, and he pours it into a bowl. He takes that water, and he walks around the table, and he goes behind the first disciple. We don't know which one it was, but he stands behind this very first disciple. He lays the basin down on the ground, and he climbs down onto his hands and his knees, and then he reaches into the water, and he wets his hands. He gets his hands really wet. And then he picks up the very first foot of the very first disciple, and he begins to wipe it with his hands in the water, scraping off all that mud, and all that dust, and possibly even, even animal waste off of that foot. Now, can you imagine how quiet it is in the room right now? The only thing you can probably hear is just the sloshing of the water as Jesus does this. Can you imagine how long it takes? I mean, Jesus washes 24 feet. I mean, we're talking at least 15, maybe even 20 minutes that Jesus takes to do this act. One by one, over and over, washing the feet, taking the towel around his waist, drying them off, wiping off the dirty water just does it over and over and over again. The man that they were following, the liberator of all Israel, the Messiah from God, the leader they'd waited for generations for, the king that they believed was about to remove all the religious leaders to overthrow the Roman government is now on his hands and knees in his underwear, scrubbing mud off their feet at the dinner table. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine what they were thinking. It's hard to imagine what they were feeling, how humbling that must have been, how uncomfortable that must have been. That's why later in this story, John tells us that at one point, Peter speaks up, one of the followers of Jesus, and his, his reaction is probably what you would think. He thinks, Jesus, no. Jesus, you, you can't do this. Don't do this. It's humiliating, not just for you. I'm humiliated for you. You should not be the one doing this but after 24 feet are all clean the towel that jesus is wearing is soaking wet it's filthy it's clinging to his legs jesus takes it off sets it aside he puts his robe back on he comes back to the table and if his words before didn't hit home i'm telling you they did now and jesus says next do you guys understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, because that's what I am. Now notice here, Jesus doesn't discount, he doesn't downplay his position of who he is. Jesus is still teacher. He is still their Lord. He still possesses all power and all authority over them. None of that has ever changed. But what is changing is the definition of power and authority. 
Jesus says, since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I'm giving you an example to follow. So do as I have done to you. Now remember what Jesus had just said just a few moments ago. He said, guys, in this world, this world we live in, what's normal for us? What's normal is that leaders and people in authority, they use that authority. They lord it over people. They use power. They use influence for their own good, for their own advancement. They go and sit at the head of the table and watch while the powerless serve the powerful, but not among us. Among us, guys, it's going to be different. The definition of power, the definition of leadership, the definition of influence, I am turning it upside down right here, right now. So when I usher in my new kingdom, this new definition of power, it's going to sweep across the entire world, and it's going to start with you. And Jesus would say, leaders are not great when they leverage their power for themselves. Leaders are great when they leverage their power for the good of those who have no power. Leaders are great when they serve the needs of those who cannot serve themselves. Leaders are great when they wash feet. And I don't have to take a survey on this. I don't have to ask any of you to raise your hands and tell me what you think. I don't even have to ask you what you believe about Jesus or what you think about Christianity or the Bible or any of that kind of stuff. This I know. We all agree on this. When you encounter someone who holds more power than you have, someone who has more influence than you, someone who has more resources than you, this is how you want them to behave. This is the kind of person you want them to be. You want them to be a person who will leverage who they are, leverage what they have been given for the good of other people. This is the person that you would say, I want to know that person. I want to follow that person. I want to work for that person. I will, I will respect that person. But I'm telling you, in the first century, it wasn't expected. This was a radical idea. It was countercultural. This is not what the disciples were expecting from their king. It was certainly not what they expected from a Messiah. It was brand new. They were looking for a warrior, a ruler, a conqueror, a king. What they got was a servant wrapped in a wet towel on his hands and knees. But I'm telling you, when those guys got it, when those 11 disciples really understood what was happening, you say, well, why do you say 11? I thought there were 12 because one of them never got it. You probably know his story. Judas, he was sitting around the table that night. He actually gets up from the meal, right in the middle of this meal, and he goes out and he turns Jesus into the authorities. He's the one who brings them to arrest Jesus. And the reason we don't know for sure, but many people speculate, it was probably because of things like this. He had become so disgusted with what he was seeing and hearing from Jesus that he just couldn't take it anymore. Or maybe he was just impatient. He was trying to hurry Jesus Jesus up to get him to that point where he would finally take power and finally take over and Jesus wasn't working fast enough for him but for whatever reason he betrays Jesus because of this events like this and the things that he taught but but when the other 11 finally understood the significance of what Jesus is doing at this moment it changed the world literally it changed the world because they started living this way they started leveraging the power and authority that they had for the, for the good of other people. 
Now, they didn't get it until after Jesus' resurrection. We'll see that in the next few weeks. But the ripple effect that their lives had on our world, we could never even measure it. Over the centuries, the followers of this servant king who washed his subjects' feet would begin to use their power and their influence for the sake of the powerless. And it would become the Christians who would begin to elevate the status of the powerless in society. It was the Christians who elevated the status of women and children like they had never been done in the world before. Women began to be treated as equals to their husbands in the church. Women were given levels of authority and and leadership positions within the early church. When the Roman government established a a policy in in the Roman world where if you had a child and you didn't want that child or maybe that child was disabled or maybe child was just not the right gender and you didn't want to have this baby, you could take, by law in the Roman world, take your baby and just expose them to the elements out in a forest and just leave them there to die. And it was the Christians who hid in those woods and who rescued those children and who began to care for them and take care of them just like they were their own. It was the Christians who opened up the very first orphanages. Whenever infectious diseases would begin to sweep through the world at that time, most people would run away from them. They would leave the sick in order to care for themselves and to die because they didn't want to catch anything from them. It was the Christians who went into those societies and went into those communities at the risk of their own lives and cared for the sick because of their leader who leveraged his power for the sake of the powerless. And then it was the Christians who built the very first hospitals to care for the sick. It was the Christians who led the way in abolishing slavery in our world, even when people who called themselves Christians hijacked the faith and tried to justify it. It was the Christians who said, no, not on our watch. And I could go on and on and on and on, but when Jesus washed the feet of his followers that night, he unleashed this new idea into the world. If you have power, if you have influence, if you have a position of authority, if you have resources, they were not given to you for you. They were given to you so that you might leverage them for the sake of someone without them. And my strength, my power, my authority, your strength, your power, it's not what makes you great. It's not what makes me great in the kingdom of God. You know what makes us great? Greatness comes when I go down the ladder of power and I serve. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you, wouldn't, if you haven't surrendered your life to his leadership and you wouldn't call him teacher or Lord or any of that, then listen, I don't have any authority. I have zero authority to tell you what to do. I can't tell you how to live your life. But I can tell you this. I think you're a smart person. And I think you know, as well as I do, that the world would be a better place if everyone lived this way. If everyone took Jesus' example seriously, and began to leverage their power and authority and their resources for the good of other people, our world would be better. And so I would just encourage you, I would challenge you, no matter what you believe about Jesus, follow his example. I mean, it would make your life better. It would make you better at life. It would make the lives of the people around you better. I can't tell you what to do, but I, I I think that's what would happen. And I think you know that too. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you do call him teacher, you do call him Lord. Listen, guys, we don't get a choice on this one. Jesus was speaking as much to you and to me as he was the disciples around that table that night. Since I, your Lord and teacher, he said, washed your feet, you wash each other's feet. 
It is an example for you to follow. So you do as I have done to you. Your Savior, the one who existed before there was time, who spoke the universe into existence, he has all power and all authority, and yet he laid down every right and every power, and he entered into a flesh and blood body and willingly allowed himself to be stripped naked, whipped within an inch of his life, and nailed to a cross. He chose to leverage everything he had for your sake and for mine. And now, he just asked me and you to do the same. Whatever power, whatever authority you've been given, don't use it for your own advancement. Use it for the sake of someone else. And become great in the kingdom of God by becoming a servant to every person. And listen, it doesn't have to be that complicated. I, I know it feels that way. But I think it's very simple. I think it's as simple as one question. In fact, a few years ago when this really struck me for in a, in a new way, I, I felt maybe like some of you feel, and I think, well, where do I even begin? Well, where do I even start to live a life like that? And for me, it just came down to one question, something that I've taught you guys before. If you've been here for a while, you may have heard me say this. I'm going to teach it to you again. This is a question that I've just adopted into my vocabulary, into my life, and I walk around with it everywhere I go, and I try my best. And in fact, I challenge myself to try and ask this question at least once a day to someone in my life. Here's the question. It's very simple. What can I do to help? What can I do to help? I think that is such a powerful question. And I'll tell you why I think that. Anytime you ask that question to someone, you're saying to the people around you, hey, right now, whatever's going on, I'm loaning you me. I've got a little time, or I've got some expertise, or I've got some resources, or I've got some wisdom, and I would be happy to lend that to you in this moment, to leverage that for your benefit. So tell me, how can I do that? What can I do to help you? What can I do to move your agenda forward, not my own? What can I do to help you go further in life? What can I do to make your life a little bit easier? What can I do to help? I am your and I think I've said this before, a lot of times I'll ask this question to people and their answer to me is nothing. And that's okay. I mean, they'll just say, there's nothing you can do for me right now. But even when they say that to me, they know I'm coming on to your team. I'm, I'm standing in the gap for you. I'm moving to your side. And we're, to, we're in this together. And I'm doing this for your benefit. In fact, uh, years ago, I, I used to ask the question a different way. I would say, hey, if there's anything I can ever do for you, you just let me know. And I'd sort of lead the ball in their court. And I started realizing that nobody ever called. And so now I'll, I'll, I'll ask it in the affirmative. I'll say, tell me right now, what is, what is it that I can do to help you in this moment? And again, it just, it's just a question that I just walk around with. And it helps me live this life that Jesus showed me by example. So guys, what if? What if? What if all followers of Jesus just decided we're going to follow the example of our leader? What if we carried our power, our influence, our resources into this world and we just had that question on our lips all the time? What can I do to help? Because I follow a God who didn't just sit up in heaven and lord his power over me and give me rules to follow and force me to comply. No, I follow a God who left all of that. He left his power and his privilege and his authority and he came into this world and he washed feet so out of reverence for what he's done for me, what can I do to help you? How can I leverage what I have for your benefit? So I'll just leave you with that challenge. 
How about for the next 30 days? Just for the next month or so. You just walked around, and, every, and once a day, one time every day, you just asked somebody that question, hey, what can I do to help you right now? See, that question, that attitude, that example, changed the world once. And I believe it can do it again. Let's bow for prayer. God, I thank you that you are a Lord, a leader, you chose not to lord your authority over us, but you came to become, to become one of us. And you used your power and authority to serve. You took on the very nature of a servant rather than clinging to your heavenly privileges. God, we thank you for that. We love you for that. And God, thank you that you left that as an example for us that we could follow and do the same. May we live the way Jesus did. May we become great in your kingdom by becoming servants of all. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. We'll see you right here next week.